What you don't want is a large proportion of the network having the same type of problem at the same time, whether that's 40% of the network goes offline or there's a bug in client software, everybody's using AWS and AWS goes down. In ETH2 and in other systems, if you go down at the same time as lots of other validators, you get a higher penalty than if you're uncorrelated. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Developer Perspectives, Ethereum 2.0 from Coindesk Podcasts. I'm Christine Kim, a Coindesk Research Analyst, and over the next five weeks, we'll be discussing the hotly anticipated Ethereum 2.0 upgrade and its potential impact on crypto markets with a number of distinguished guests. In this series, we'll speak with the folks inside the Ethereum developer community itself and take a look behind the scenes at what comes next. For this first episode, we'll be talking about the staking dynamics of Ethereum 2.0, so get ready. For today's show, I'm joined by Paul Hauner, the co-founder of Sigma Prime. Sigma Prime is one of several developer teams building the technology which users will run on their computer or other devices to connect to the Ethereum 2.0 network. Sigma Prime's Ethereum 2.0 software client is called Lighthouse and is currently one of four being tested on the official Ethereum 2.0 Medalla test network. Say hi, Paul. Hello. Great to have you. We also have on this episode, Tim Ogilvy, the co-founder and CEO of cryptocurrency staking platform Staked. Through Staked, users can earn returns on their holdings of cryptocurrency like ETH. In preparation for Ethereum 2.0's launch, Staked will also be providing users an easy way to become validators on the Ethereum 2.0 network and earn interest from the new proof of stake blockchain. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to be on this show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. And on a personal note, I'm really looking forward to speaking with each of you because I have spoken with you guys before in the past. Um, and this episode, we do want to be talking about the many unique features of staking on Ethereum 2.0. But for our listeners who haven't been following the march towards Ethereum 2.0 very closely, Tim, can you start us off by giving a brief explanation of these two terms we're going to be saying a lot on this episode, proof of stake and relatedly staking? Sure. Um, well, I think proof of stake is easiest to understand when you put it in context of proof of work, which is, which is the security model that Bitcoin uses. So in proof of work systems, miners compete or the right to create the next new block. And they solve a mathematical puzzle by running mining infrastructure all over the world. And whoever solves it first gets the right to create a new block. And they get rewards associated with that uh, in the form of new Bitcoin that gets created, as well as the transaction fees in each block. There are a couple problems with proof of work, most notably that it costs $6 billion a year in energy. and um, some other issues around fast finality and, and things like that. So proof of stake is an alternative version where the right to create the next new block is proportionate to your stake in the system. So if you have 10% of the staked ETH in the system, you have the right to create roughly 10% of the new blocks or sign 10% of the new blocks. 
And so staking is the art uh, or is the, is the act of participating in that security system where in, in effect, you will take your ETH and you will, you will stake it saying, I vouch for the behavior of a specific node and that they will sign new blocks correctly. And as a reward for it, that node acting honestly in the system, you will get potentially the block rewards associated with, with participation. And that looks like um, you know, a stream of income uh, over time. If your node behaves dishonestly, you can potentially get slashed, which means you lose a small portion of your funds for behavior that went against the network. So those are the, those are the broad definitions. And I'm really glad that you had contrasted it with proof of work because my next question to you, Paul, is before you started working on building Ethereum 2.0, what was your opinion on proof of stake systems compared to the more traditional proof of work blockchain systems, which is what Bitcoin and Ethereum currently run with? Uh, yeah, sure. So personally, I, I've always been a fan of proof of stake. I think it's just always sounded like a good idea to me. Um, I'm personally quite concerned about uh, the environment and climate change and our use of, of energy. So proof of stake naturally felt, felt good to me. And then after reading a little bit more about some of the security properties, so part of my background is in information security as well. So reading about some of the security properties of proof of stake kind of cemented it in for me that um, it seemed like a really good idea. And an interest and, and desire to see a switch to proof of stake is one of the, I'd say, the fundamental reasons why I'm working on Ethereum too now. Hmm. Energy efficiency is one of the one of the benefits of using a proof of stake network, proof of stake system. But as I understand, there's quite a lot of design complexities when it comes to building a proof of stake blockchain, making sure that all the incentives in the network are working correctly. And as I mentioned kind of in the introduction of this podcast episode, Ethereum's proof of stake blockchain, which has been over five years in the making, is now finally on an official public test network, the Medalla network. Um, Tim, is staked running any experimental validator nodes on Medalla right now? Oh, yes. Uh, we're running a large number of clients. We use a number of different implementations of ETH2, including Prism and, and Lighthouse. So we're testing extensively to get ready for launch. And how are you finding operations? Were there any surprises when you were running Lighthouse or Prism? Well, we run 25 other proof-of-stake networks. And so we're used to running in test nets. And, and we see a lot of the same issues that you see in test nets, which is sometimes the software doesn't communicate perfectly or, or has issues where it needs to be restarted or the network needs to be restarted. I would say I think Ethereum's in pretty good shape relative to a lot of the other test nets we've seen. So the bumps have been relatively small. Uh, and at this point, we're really focused on, on more hardening our infrastructure than we are worried about kind of the core client falling over and, and not able to establish consensus. And Paul, uh, wh wh how are things from your end since the launch of the Medalla network? Were there any surprises flagged to your team by early users of Lighthouse trying to stake their coin and connect to that test network? Oh yeah, absolutely. Lots, lots of surprises. We learned lots of things. This is the biggest launch that, uh, biggest testnet launch that Ethereum 2 has seen. So we had a lot more people involved, a broader scope of people. So we learned about things that were frustrating for people. Um, we also found some bugs. We've been troubleshooting a very interesting 
an elusive bug at the moment, which can cause nodes to crash, where a lot of the problems we're having at the moment are in the networking side of things. F2 updated, um, kind of introduced a fully new networking stack. And these network, um, peer-to-peer networks are very difficult to debug. Yeah, lots of lessons learned for us. Lots of stability improvements. I think it was interesting at the start too, where we saw that we didn't quite have enough people uh, show up to turn their nodes on uh, for the testnet launch. It was an interesting look at what proof-of-stake networks look like if there isn't a sufficient stake, if people aren't risking money. It's quite interesting to see that they're not really motivated to, to perform the work, but I think this is something that will it'll pretty much disappear once people have real Ethereum stake on the line. Hmm. Why do you think that real Ethereum would change uh, that dynamic, especially when it comes to having enough stake on the protocol to make sure that the network is secure at launch? I think the stake is very important for people just as a motivator, really. Uh, I mean, if you've got, like, why, why should you, keeping in mind that these Ethereum 2 launches and, and the things that happen on Ethereum, they're not local to your time zone. So they might be happening at, you know, 2 a.m. or something like this. Why would people want to participate in the network if they don't have to? It's just a lot of overhead. So, yeah, I think um, But once we have Ethereum 2 live and we're using, people have thousands of dollars worth of ethanol lines, they're going to treat this very differently. And I think that they're going to become <laughs> very interested in ensuring that their validator nodes stay up. Speaking of putting thousands of ETH on the line, um, I do want to talk a little bit uh, in this podcast about some of the risks associated with staking on Ethereum 2.0. Tim, for users who do want to try out this technology, the software, and then make a bit of extra income on their ETH, what would you say are the biggest concerns in your mind, the biggest warnings that you'd like, to, like people to know before they invest their 32 ETH onto the new network? Sure. I think there are, there are probably three things people should be aware of. And the first is, is a really important one, which is during phase zero, which is the beacon chain launch, when you send your ETH1 to the deposit contract, it is effectively transformed into ETH2, but there are no transfers enabled on ETH2. And, and there's no way of going back. So when you decide to stake on ETH2, it is a one-way trip until the next phase it has been enabled. Your funds are not liquid, and really the only thing you can do is participate in stake. People have to understand that fundamentally before they get started. And then once you've made the decision to stake, and I think lots of people will, there are two fundamental risks that you face as a staker. Number one, uh, and they're really around making sure that you are running uh, reliable and secure infrastructure. Number one, you got to be up effectively 100% of the time, extended downtime or, or just dropping out of the system can cause you to get slashed. It starts as very small amounts, but if you're off for really extended periods of time, as in weeks or months, can, it can have a very material effect. So if you're in it, you really have to be in it and committed. Uh, and the second is if you have a sloppy technical setup or you get hacked and your validator keys are taken, you could, um, you could do what they call double sign a block, which is sign two blocks that are exactly the same height. That looks to the network like it might be an attack on the network, particularly if other people are doing it. And that will get you slashed, call it 5%. So I think in summary, what I'd say is you should be ready to run a secure and reliable infrastructure to ensure that you, when you make the decision to stake, you are doing it and, and participating with the network. 
You said you had three, Tim. That was only two, I think. Uh, so my, my three were really, um, there are two ways you can get slashed, extended downtime and double signing. And then there's this one overarching issue, which is that there is no liquidity in ETH2. And so once you put your money in, it is locked until such time as they get to phase one or, or some kind of bridge back to Ethereum one. Mm -hmm. Paul, did what Tim said make sense to you? Did he miss anything when it comes to the risks of staking on Ethereum 2.0? No, really. I think, I think that's perfect. I think um, what I heard was the risk of a security risk of being attacked and hacked. Uh, there's the two types of rewards, offline penalties uh, and being slashed for equivocating or double voting. Uh, and then also the, the lack of liquidity, the, the fact that you committed to, to Ethereum 2 for a while. They're perfect. So now that we've talked a little bit about the risks when it comes to staking, I do want to talk a little bit about the differences between staking on Ethereum and mining on Ethereum. There are some important and notable differences about earning rewards on the Ethereum 2.0 network that's going to change once Ethereum 2.0 launches. Tim, you had mentioned earlier, you were talking about how you guys are focusing now on, on strengthening hardware. I'd really love to hear from both Paul and Tim, you guys, your thoughts on the major differences when it comes to staking on Ethereum versus what everybody knows is, is mining on Ethereum. Um, Paul, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Staking on proof of stake blockchains is much simpler in terms of hardware than uh, mining on proof of work blockchains. The hardware requirements, the physical energy and, and a specialized equipment like ASICs, um, things like that that you require for proof of work, they just simply don't exist for proof of stake. So proof of stake, you could just kind of run on like old computers you have lying around your house or you can run it on you know, like whatever server cloud you can find. It's very straightforward. I think perhaps what is a little bit more complex in staking is that you now have key management where you didn't necessarily have that in proof of work blockchains. So your physical hardware and the chips and processes and boxes and stuff are all simpler, um, but you do have to be a bit smarter about managing these staking keys and ensuring that you don't leak uh, key information, get hacked, and also that you don't happen to run the same key on two different machines and then start producing slashable blocks, equivocations, um, double votes. So yeah, I think uh, simpler in some aspects, but a little bit more complicated, uh, a little bit more complex from a um, security management perspective. Hey listeners, Crypto.com offers one of the most convenient ways to purchase your favorite tokens or cryptocurrencies. It's also one of the most cost-effective ways with the normal 3.5% credit card fee waived for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. So download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. 
In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. From my understanding, people can actually expect to earn rewards more frequently on the Ethereum 2.0 network than Ethereum now. It's not kind of a random, if somebody finds a block, that's when they get their rewards. Is that correct, Tim? Is that, would you say that's an important uh, difference also about staking versus mining on Ethereum? Well, yeah. I mean, I do think, I do think you've got the key difference, though, is you've got a different set of participants. I mean, a miner is a professional organization who basically raises outside capital, buys a bunch of really specialized computers, and is, is kind of outside the Ethereum system. Right, and they're creating blocks, and they're just trying to compete to create the next new block, spend a lot of electricity, and and get their hash rate as high as humanly possible. Ethereum and, and proof of stake systems are secured by the holders of ETH um, themselves, so they're putting forth their own capital. It's the first time they've been able to do that and actually participate in staking rewards. So, yeah, it does come at sort of a. It, it's got a pretty reasonable easy to understand delivery schedule. But I think for most people who hold ETH, this will be the first time they get to participate in new block rewards that get created. And that's a, that's a really different system and kind of unique to proof of stake. And speaking of, of how staking will be a more generalized activity than mining over the long term with, say, DAP developers or exchanges or custodians even, just being able to do this uh, with the hardware that they have I'm curious to know, Paul, do you foresee any kind of danger in the long-term staking dynamics of Ethereum 2.0 where you know, providers like staked gradually start to attract more and more users because it's just so easy to turn to staking as a service provider rather than doing the whole validator, taking on the responsibilities of a validator themselves? Yeah, I think there's definitely a risk there that uh, people do centralize into some staking pool or some organization. Uh, I think this exists with, with proof of work as well. I think this type of centralization is perhaps driven by the larger economy. It's something that's kind of uh, natural in, in this modern day. So it's something that we're going to have to deal with. But nonetheless, I think that we can manage it. Uh, although it's, it's kind of structurally bound to happen, I think we can manage it. People can move around. The overhead to start a staking operation I think is much less than it is for a mining operation in terms of capital overhead. So we can see new staking pools pop up a lot easier than we could see in mining. We can also choose to, to move around staking providers. We can have a bit more transparency about who's producing blocks. They can you know, add their, um, we can see how active they are, how many, how many nodes they have on the network, and we can kind of respond to this. So I think it's structurally a problem as it is with proof of work. But we do have, uh, I think, more strategies to uh, mitigate it with proof of stake than we did with proof of work. I'd, I'd add a little bit on to that. Yeah, please, Tim. I was just going to ask, I mean, you have so much experience with other proof of stake networks. What are your thoughts on, on this danger for stake centralization? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's anywhere near as dangerous as a proof of work system. In proof of work, if you happen to have a miner that outperforms everyone else on the network, you are you have a structural advantage and can effectively outcompete everybody for hash rate. That's just not the case in proof of stake, where, as Paul mentioned, there are a bunch of strategies. And the network itself, and we've seen this on other chains, when we start to accumulate too much stake in the network, we start losing business and people take their business elsewhere because they don't want to see, they hold the currency and they don't want to see centralization and the same types of risks. And so the network naturally decentralizes in a much more efficient manner than you see in a, in a proof of work system. So I think, of course, things are going to centralize a little bit. It's hard to run thousands of servers and validator clients if you're a large holder. So you may want to work with someone who specializes in it. The, the real centralization risk, I think you're going to end up with a much more decentralized network overall. Do you know if other proof-of-stake networks, Tim, have implemented anything on the protocol level, anything on the layer one level to mitigate, say, like the growth of staking pools from getting too big? Well, yeah, I mean, there are, um, in fact, there are, are anti-correlation penalties built into ETH2 as well. So um, what you typically see is you, what you don't want is a large proportion of the network having the same type of problem at the same time, right? Whether that's 40% of the network goes offline, or there's a bug in client software, or everybody's using AWS and AWS goes down. So in ETH2 and in other systems, if you go down at the same time as lots of other validators, you get a higher penalty than if you're uncorrelated. And so one of the things Stake does is we make sure that we run our infrastructure across five different data center environments where we can dynamically be in places where others are not. And we'll use all the different clients to mitigate against having any kind of correlation. So I think there is, there's kind of structural things built into ETH2 to, to work against centralization. There's one other aspect of Ethereum 2.0 security I would really like to get hear your guys' thoughts on. And it actually comes from a recent independent study that was conducted by some consensus folks, Tanner Hoban and Tom Borgens. Uh, their conclusion from their study was that the base rewards for Ethereum 2.0 at phase zero launch should be increased. That currently the specifications for Ethereum 2.0 the network is underpaying for security. Paul, for phase zero, could you explain what's the current estimated reward rate on Ethereum 2.0 and your thoughts on whether you think it's sufficient to secure the network in the early months after launch? Sure. So I believe, so it's a little complicated to um, express how much you get returned in F2. Um, it depends on the number of stakers that you have it depends on if the network is in like a serious fault condition or not. Um, so like if you're imagining a little, you know, graph that goes from the bottom and it goes up to the right, then there's a few different paths it can take uh, depending on the network status of F2. But I think about 16% per annum is, uh, is my understanding of what, what we can expect. It's roughly similar to what you uh, would earn for being offline at the same time. So it's interesting that if you're offline for the whole year, you'll, you'll only lose about say 15%. And 
you're asking about the whether it's important to secure S2 at the start. Could you could you go into detail on that? Sorry. So phase zero um, in the beginning of launch, there's going to be a base reward for what the validators should be receiving. And then given the kind of minimum number of validators that you want at launch and the amount of rewards that will be paid to them, I think one of the conclusions that Tanner and Tom was saying was that these validators should be paid more to be incentivized to keep the network secure rather than if the payment for what the validators are getting are too low, then there could be an attacker paying more than the total. So if it's like 500 million being paid out to validators, somebody with 600 million will come and just change all the transactions, rewrite some, some blocks, something to that effect. I guess it's kind of similar to a 51% attack, but I don't want to get into the definition of that right now. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I follow. Uh, I thought you meant just only changing it at the start of F2, but upping it forever is, is what they decided on. Is that right? I'm not particularly familiar with the report, though. I can, I can provide a little bit of context because I think we see some of this on, on other networks. Uh, you know, so ETH2 starts, as Paul mentioned, in the high teens. So you can expect 16% per year. Uh, and that goes down as more and more ETH gets staked into the system. It goes down to as low as about 2.3% or so. And so I think, the, I think the concern is that as ETH gets dumped into the system, staking ETH will not have a market making yield such that if I can lend out my ETH for 4.5% and I can stake it for 2.5%, I may prefer to just lend it out and earn the higher yield associated with it. And I do, think, I do think that's a real concern. I think when I look at the amount of ETH that gets staked, it is, um, it's a really high number that can secure the network. I think the early days should have some time to figure out, you know, that it'll provide enough security to get the network launched and live and really get some market feedback on what are the rates that stakers demand to put their ETH at risk. And, and I, I think there may have to be adjustments, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see adjustments over time. We've seen that in other networks as well. One more follow-up question to that, Tim, especially as it relates to staking pools. As I understand, conversely, mining pools in comparison to staking pools offer very limited risk for miners who participate. And you had explained in your explanation of the risks when it comes to validating on Ethereum 2.0, it's that there are these conditions that could, could lead to slashing, that could lead to getting your rewards pulled. When someone's using a, a staking as a provider service like staked, would the probability of that be extremely low? How do you guys manage yourselves the risk of slashing and of, of getting rewards cut? Well, that's our, that's our pitch, right? I mean, the, um, fundamentally, there are risks here. And our target clientele are typically investors or exchanges or custodians who hold a lot of stake. They want to participate, but they don't necessarily want a large DevOps operation for running all of the validators. And we have spent a couple of years building software that minimizes the risks associated with running proof-of-stake networks. And so that means our ability to keep things live if networks go down or data centers go down is very easy for us. And we've got a lot of security built into the way we handle validator keys so that we're not going to mismanage them and accidentally double sign a block or, or things like that. 
Um, you know, I think fundamentally this is this is a question of there are a lot of hobbyists who are going to want to run their own infrastructure. Uh, financial investors are going to hire people, whether those are in-house people or someone like Stake to do this professionally for them. And that's that's the role we play is to hopefully take as much risk out of the equation as possible for them. Yeah. And I'm going to throw a little bit of, we're coming down to our last couple of minutes here on this episode. And I want to ask a little bit of a fun question to both of you. Um, Tim and Paul, as you know, lately, the Bitcoin price has been surging, as of course has the ETH price. Um, But it's, it's, Funny because 32 ETH now is roughly um, equitable to one Bitcoin. Paul, I want to start with you. Um, give me your pros and cons for what you would say is the better investment for somebody who's new to crypto and just entering into the space. Is buying one Bitcoin or using that same amount of money to buy 32 ETH, which one of those two do you think is a better investment? I would buy the ETH. I think it's just a I think it's just a far better project in my opinion. I'm much more likely to choose ETH over Bitcoin. I work with it every day. Um, that's one of the reasons I do. So I just go for ETH because I think it's a better project, more interesting, more use cases, pushing technology more. I'd go ETH. Tim, do you have the same answer? <laughs> uh, pr- pretty close. I think, I think Paul and I live pretty close to, to ETH every day. And so our, our, there's a lot of really positive stuff going on. I would say that I think Bitcoin's role as store of value and digital gold is a really good one. And I think it probably has less upside and less downside associated with it. Whereas as ETH sort of comes into its own as the smart contract platform of choice, I think there's probably more upside associated with it, particularly because I think they're going to nail the transition to ETH2. And that's going to that's gonna give people a lot of confidence that this is the platform for the future. Mm-hmm. We spent a lot of this this episode talking about the staking dynamics of Ethereum too, but is there any other aspect of Ethereum making this transition to proof of stake that you guys um, want to highlight and are excited about? Um, Paul, do you want to go first? I just think the environmental improvements from swapping to proof of stake is just really great. I think that people should talk about this more. Uh, and I think that once we start to see this technology go more mainstream, that it's going to be really important to people uh, that this this technology is more energy efficient. That's just that's just what I'm in it for. Mm-hmm. Tim, I'm a I'm a DeFi guy, so I love the uh, confluence of all the cool lending and and yield farming things that are happening in ETH one. That I think as you transition to uh, ETH two, particularly once we deal with some of the, the thornier problems with that transition, I think are, are really going to make the sky the limit in terms of the stuff we can do. So that's what I get excited about. For sure. Paul and Tim, it was a pleasure speaking with you guys today. Thank you very much for the time. Everyone, this has been episode one of Developer Perspectives, Ethereum 2.0. For everybody that is listening, you can find social media links to connect with Paul and Tim for any follow-up questions for our discussion in today's show notes. Once again, I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. And if you haven't already, please check out our Ethereum 2.0 explainer report, which is available now and free to download on the Coindesk website. The report features additional commentary from Ethereum developers like Paul and other cool visualizations explaining the dynamics of the upcoming proof of stake network. 
so you can stay up to date with the Coindesk research team and be the first to hear about our new reports, webinars, and definitely new podcast episodes on Twitter by following at Coindesk Data. Thanks everyone for listening. Talk to you guys again soon.